everybody, welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. We're having so much fun going through St. Paul's letter to the Romans. It's challenging, but it's also an exhilarating experience, like climbing the Mount Everest of New Testament documents. But we're trying to take what's difficult and make it a lot more clear. So open up to Romans chapter 4 in your Bible. That's kind of where we left off. St. Paul is talking about our father in faith, Abraham. And this is what he actually says. He says exactly this in verse 16. He talks about those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And so we'll talk about giving life to the dead in just a second, but this idea of uh, calling into existence the things that do not exist, this is creation ex nihilo. And this this whole concept was really taking on a life of its own in the Jewish world. Think about the writings of Philo of Alexandria, as well as St. Paul here, obviously. And, and I'll share something else with you, too. So this idea of giving life to the dead and calling into existence the things that do not exist also applies to faith, not only the faith of Abraham, who becomes our father in faith, but also other Gentiles who come to know the one true and living God. You know, there's another book that came out. It's not in the Bible or anything like that, but it was a Jewish writing that came out around the same time as St. Paul's letter to the Romans. It was called Joseph and Asenath. Asenath was the Egyptian wife, or so it was said, of Joseph in the book of Genesis, the patriarch Joseph, and his technicolor dream code, all that stuff. And this book is all about how Asenath, the wife of Joseph, converts to Judaism. And here's what it says in this book. Joseph is actually praying for her, for her conversion. He prays, Lord God of my father Israel, the Most High, the powerful one of Jacob, who gave life to all things, and called them from the darkness to the light. Make her alive again by your life. End of quote. Isn't that interesting? This whole idea of really coming alive or coming alive again through faith in God. So this idea of giving life to the dead, getting back to Abraham for a second, uh, as, as Paul talks about in Romans 4, that really happened in, in a couple of different ways. How did Abraham get life from the dead? Well, he got life quite literally, from his dead body, or a body that was as good as dead. I'm talking about Isaac, his son, who is the heir of all the promises. And Isaac himself, he got back from the dead too. Don't forget that. So let's actually take a look at this in another place in the scriptures. This is in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, some people think St. Paul wrote Hebrews as well. I don't think he did. It used to be called, in fact, the letter of St. Paul to the Hebrews, but it's just called the letter to the Hebrews now. Nobody really knows who wrote it. It could have been a disciple of St. Paul, though. And in Hebrews 11, there's that famous chapter. It's it's called the Hall of Fame of Faith chapter, chapter 11. It talks about Abraham. Now, here's what it says in Hebrews 11, starting with verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he was to receive as an an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was to go. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward 
to the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself, and that's Abraham's wife, of course, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. It says, these all died in faith. There's other people mentioned in this chapter as well. Not having received what was promised, but having seen it and greeted it from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your descendants be named. He considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead. Hence, he did receive him back, and this was a symbol so what what really is this all about? Well, when you look at how uh, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, and this is mentioned, of course, in the book of Genesis chapter 22, and uh, Scott Hahn in one of his books has an incredible pun about this. He calls it Moriah Carey, <laughs> because they went up Mount Moriah outside of Jerusalem, and in fact, uh, he carried, Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice on his back up Mount Moriah. But at any rate, he didn't know it was going to happen. Abraham knew what he was supposed to do, but he, was, he, he just somehow thought, even though God is asking me to sacrifice this son, which he has given to me miraculously, somehow, and this is real faith and trust on Abraham's part, he figured that he could somehow bring him back from the dead. So this really does prefigure and foreshadow the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. And Abraham's faith was, in Genesis 22, it comes through so clearly because he knows that God is asking him to sacrifice Isaac. But, but again, he just thinks there's going to be a way out. And he tells his companions, me and the boy will go yonder and worship and we will come again to you. We're both going to come back somehow. I don't know how God's going to do this, but he's going to get us out of this. And so this is this idea of bringing life to the dead. The, the, their dead bodies, as good as dead, Abraham and Sarah, he's 100, she's 90. Through God's help, they conceive this son. And then he metaphorically comes back from the dead. Abraham's going to slay him, but God's angel stays his hand. So th this is all the, the background here to Romans chapter 4. And you can listen to more about Genesis on the Genesis series from The Faith Explained, which is in our archives at relevantradio.com. All right, now let's look here at verse 18 of Romans chapter 4. Paul writes, In hope he believed against hope, and that's Abraham, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, because he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had 
promised. Okay, so some people think that uh, Paul is kind of glossing over the fact that there were some times when Abraham really didn't necessarily buy into this. He laughs when God reveals his plan. Hey, you're going to have a son. And I mean, this son is going to issue from your body, the body of your wife. You're going to have your own biological child. He laughs. Sarah laughs very famously as well. And some people try to over-spiritualize this. Some commentators will say, well, Abraham was just laughing with joy. <laughs> he, he, was, he just knew God was going to do it, and he was just so happy about this that he just started laughing. That's not what's going on here. Uh, he really did kind of doubt for, for a bit, for a moment. So when it says here in Romans chapter 4 that he didn't weaken in faith, that uh, he, he never doubted, that's sort of an overall, you know, in the big picture, he, he, he may have had moments here or there, but, but overall, he definitely believed. And he had way less evidence, by the way, than we do. So his faith was pretty impressive. He didn't have the Old Covenant scriptures. He didn't know about the miracles of the Exodus time. He didn't know directly about the Christ and, and all, the, all the, the wonders that he would bring forth. So he still trusted this God who had called him and put a lot of faith in him. So th this is why... And this is, this is, by the way, this is a good example for you and me, because there are moments of doubt where we might question, we might even laugh at some of the, some of the things that we've been asked to believe. But overall, it's the, it's the big picture that counts. Is our life sort of on this trajectory of trust as we move closer and closer to God? And so let, let's look here at verse 22. What, what does it say? That is why his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. There's that word reckoned again. It's going to come up again. Verse 23. But the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him that raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Okay. So that's the end of chapter 4. Now, this is where St. Paul kind of makes the transition. He shows how everything that he's been saying about Abraham and really all the stuff he's been talking about, about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant time, the law, all that stuff, he says that it was written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. This is where the rubber meets the road, not only for believers that Paul's writing to in Rome, but also for us in the 21st century. Us who believe in him, in God the Father, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, in verse um, 24 and 25, um, St. Paul is really quoting a creed, an ancient creed of the church. We have the Apostles' Creed. There are also little creeds, little statements of belief all throughout the New Testament. And this is one of them. Here's another one. Jesus is Lord. That's a creed. That's a statement of belief. We've talked about the Corinthian Creed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so Paul's kind of quoting this. Now, this could have been in the form of a song, a worship hymn. We're not quite sure, but it's very poetic. It's easy to remember. He was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification, Jesus our Lord. So why does he throw this in? Uh, he basically does it because he's never met the Catholic community at Rome. He's never been. Uh, to Rome. He's never met these guys in person. So he wants them to know, hey, I share the same faith that you do. I, I believe the same creeds that you do. 
And it's just another way of uh, getting familiar uh, with uh, the Roman church. So St. Thomas Aquinas says, this is kind of interesting, Jesus was put to death for our trespasses. So when we, when we talk about the death of Jesus on the cross, that, that's where he deals with the sin problem. That's really where he deals with forgiveness of sins, makes that possible because he takes the punishment that we deserve on the cross. But then Jesus is raised for our justification. When he's raised, he, this is a reference to, of course, the resurrection. And, and that enables us to get this justification, to get right with God, to get that new life, to get God's grace so giving life to the dead, to those of us who are spiritually dead, this is how we get our life back. We get our sins forgiven, and we get the life of Christ given to us. This is really what it's all about. So let's, let's go now to the uh, next chapter. We're moving into chapter 5. And St. Paul starts out, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever Paul says, or anybody else in Scripture says, therefore, we've got to look and see what it's there for. So essentially what he's doing right now is he's making a break. Everything he said before is leading up to what he's, he's saying right now. All, all that stuff, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, take that all as a whole and say, therefore, because of all this, we are justified by faith. That initial justification, that initial forgiveness that we get, uh, we don't earn it, we don't deserve it, we receive it as a gift by faith. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says peace, he's really referring to that Hebrew concept of shalom, shalom, which, which is more than just an absence of conflict. It, it's a total wellness. There, there's such a, a trend, a fad in our culture today of wellness. You know? But th this is really ultimate wellness. It's, it's harmony of mind, body, soul, having peace with God, peace with one another, just a, a completely harmonious situation. And, and the ultimate shalom, of course, will come in the kingdom of heaven, but we can still get that foretaste of it now. We can still experience the, his peace now. And so he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we don't have peace with God in our lives, we're constantly in conflict, whether with ourselves, with others, and in verse 2, he writes, Through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So this idea in verse 2 of, of getting access to this grace, uh, th this is intriguing. It's almost like having a backstage pass at a concert. You get to meet the celebrity, the, the man himself, whether it's Elvis or you name it. You, you, get, you, get to, you get access to the Lord of the universe in Jesus Christ. And... and how do, we, how do we get that? And it's, it's almost like this idea of getting access to a king so you can make your request known. Or getting access to God. Well, there's really two ways you could do that in the ancient world. You could get into the throne room, and if you wanted to, to meet God, you would have to go to a temple. Well, 
it's interesting because when it comes to the God of the Bible, his throne really was in the temple. It was kind of a two-in-one deal because his throne was on the mercy seat, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. We talked about the Ark of the Covenant before, and Paul kind of alludes to that when he says that Jesus has made expiation for our sins. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, and make atonement for the sins of the people. So we have Jesus who has sat down on his throne at the right hand of his Father in the ultimate Holy of Holies, in the inner sanctum of heaven itself, and he's reigning from this cosmic temple. Just as uh, folks used to go to Jerusalem and they would worship where God had his throne, well, now, of course, that can happen anywhere in the world. And especially can happen wherever the real presence of Jesus is. We can worship God, of course, when we're by ourselves, but, we, but when we're out in the woods. But there are times when we do have to go to the church and worship publicly Sunday Mass, which we're commanded to do. It's a mortal sin to miss Sunday Mass without a very, very valid, serious reason. And we, we have to be with Jesus Christ because he is reigning from every tabernacle in the world as well, his real presence. So we have access to him face to face. And that's something that we ought not to take for granted. It's interesting also that St. Paul says in verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. And this is a theme in his writings that pops up again and again and again. He says, if we want to reign with him for all eternity, we must suffer along with him. Now, it's good that he reminds us of this because very often when we have to suffer in life, we question whether or not we're on the right track or whether God really loves us. Maybe we're being punished. Now, we, we know this theologically. We know this, that this is not the case. Uh, Jesus talked about in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, the man born blind, and his disciples asked him, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, this has to be some kind of a punishment. But Jesus said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This was to, this happened in order that the, the glory of God might be displayed in his life. And of course, then he gives him a sight back. It becomes kind of a living parable, this miracle, to the fact that Jesus enables us to see what really matters, and to see reality, uh, the true reality, the, the, the unseen life of the realm of God. And so this is something that we have to remember, because even though we, we know this intellectually, when, when bad things happen to us, when our plans are off track, uh, whatever the case might be, we, we, we sometimes wonder um, whether we're receiving some sort of a punishment from God. So don't don't fall into that point of view. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Well, more on this later, but how is this love poured into us? Well, it's ultimately through baptism. The pouring of the baptismal waters, that's when we receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit. And when we have the gift of the Spirit, we know, we feel uh, that love of God, that He does love and care for us. But sometimes we have to be reminded of that. So I'm here to remind you, God loves you. And thank you for joining me here on the Faith Explained. But don't go away. We're going to open up our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag right now. As we open up our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag, I want to remind you that you can send me a message and give me your question. I'll try to read it on the air. The address is faith 
at relevantradio.com. F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. That's the email. You can also find me on the X app at Kale Clark. You can follow me there at C-A-L-E Clark with an E. So this question comes to me via email, and it's from Joseph, who writes, Hi, Kale. I love your show, and I always learn a lot from your topics. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Joseph. I have a suggestion or request, he writes. Can you do a teaching on the book of wisdom? It is so rich in, well, wisdom. (laughs) I especially find the teachings on social issues and direction to leaders of the people to be so relevant for today in a time of tiring and toxic sloganism in our political climate. And it says a couple other things too in this email, but that's actually a great, great suggestion, Joseph. I've always kind of wanted to do something on the book of wisdom. And sometimes it's also known as the wisdom of Solomon, that book in the Old Testament. That'd be a great idea for an extended show topic in the future, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do today. I'll give you a brief rundown of what the Book of Wisdom is really all about, and hopefully that'll just at least whet your appetite a little bit as to its contents. So sometimes it's good to get um, a worm's eye view of scripture books like we like we often do, uh, going into uh, the nitty gritty and really breaking down uh, biblical books verse by verse, but sometimes it's good to have a bird's eye view as well, where you kind of do a basic overview of of a book in one shot. And in fact, that's all I'll do for you right now on wisdom. So uh, Antonio Fuentes, who's a professor at the famous University of Navarre in Spain, uh, has written a little article kind of summarizing the book of wisdom. And again, this is a part of, as it might be expected, what's known as wisdom literature. There's it's sort of a genre of, of uh, books in the Bible and outside the Bible called wisdom literature. And so even though it's, it's claiming to have been written by Solomon, it, it, it may not have been. Um, there's a tradition in the ancient world called pseudonymity, which was very popular, in which you'd write something and then you'd say some luminary from the past wrote it, like the Testament of Moses. Oh, man, I better pay attention to this. It's got Moses' name on it. Was it written by Moses? Not really. But uh, this was probably the case here with this book called The Wisdom of Solomon, although some traditions from Solomon might have wound their way down into the book. So this book was actually written, the, the Wisdom, the Book of Wisdom, or the Wisdom of Solomon, was written in Greek. People used to say that uh, the first five chapters were written in Hebrew, but most scholars don't don't hold that anymore. But whoever did write it was a Greek-speaking Jew uh, who was a person of incredible faith, um, has to deal with polytheism in the world and, and the fact that people outside of Israel, the Israelites believe in many, many gods. He's like, this is ridiculous. Don't do it. Um, he talks a lot about Egypt. So he was probably writing from Alexandria, Egypt. You might have heard of Philo of Alexandria. He was a very prominent Jew from that city as well. There's a a big diaspora community there of uh, Jews living outside of the Holy Land. We don't know exactly when it was written, the Book of Wisdom, but it was probably... mm, It refers to the persecution uh, that the Jews experienced, in all likelihood what's referenced in the books of the Maccabees. So this is probably very, very close to the writing of the New Testament, but not quite yet. So after the time of the Maccabees and before the time of Philo of Alexandria, who lived from 20 BC onwards. So uh, there's really three parts to the Book of Wisdom. The first part 
is kind of almost like prophecy. And it talks about how, how necessary it is to practice righteousness, uh, to seek God with all your heart and all sincerity. And that's really the, the first step in, in looking for wisdom. Having a pure heart, having an upright heart, avoiding sin. And you will get this reward of, of finding wisdom, discovering wisdom. Wisdom will be revealed to you. But evildoers, uh-uh, uh, they're not going to have a happy ending. The second part of the book, uh, which is chapters 6 through 9, it's all about the source of wisdom being found in God. And so Solomon in the book, uh, whether it's actually Solomon himself, good, good question for debate, but it could have been, like I said, traditions from Solomon. Here, here, here's what uh, the writer says he means by this wisdom. He says, quote, in her, in wisdom, lady wisdom, if you will, there is a spirit that is intelligent, holy, unique, manifold, subtle, mobile, clear, unpolluted, distinct, invulnerable, loving the good, keen, irresistible, beneficent, humane, steadfast, sure, free from anxiety, all-powerful, ever-seeing all, penetrating through all spirits that are intelligent and pure and most subtle. For wisdom is more mobile than any motion. Because of her pureness, she pervades and penetrates all things. She is a breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. So, very lofty uh, explanation of wisdom there. And the author basically says that wisdom is at the foundation of all good things. And you can pray, you can ask for wisdom. And James talks about this in the New Testament. He said how important it is to pray and ask for wisdom from above. Because we can't come up with this uh, via our own cleverness. We, if we want God's wisdom, he has to give it to us which is over and above our natural reasoning. And so in Wisdom chapter 9, we, we read this, O God of my fathers and Lord of mercy, who has made all things by your word and by your wisdom has formed man to have dominion over the creatures you have made and rule the world in holiness and righteousness, pronounce judgment and uprightness of soul. Give me the wisdom that sits by your throne. Do not reject me from among your servants, for even if one is perfect, among the sons of men, yet without the wisdom that comes from you, he will be regarded as nothing. So that's from Wisdom chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And so we got to beg God for this wisdom. And of course, Solomon was filled with the wisdom of God. But even the mind of Solomon is nothing compared to the mind of Christ. Christ is wisdom incarnate. And so this is where the, the New Testament surpasses the Old Covenant. As Jesus said, hey, the queen of, of Sheba traveled for a long, long time and went to a lot of trouble to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. And now behold, one greater than Solomon is here. So we need to come to Jesus Christ for true wisdom. So there's so much more I could, I could say about this, but we are out of time. But I do think it's a great suggestion uh, to do a series one day on the book of wisdom. I'd love to do it. And you can uh, send your suggestions my way, your questions, comments. Love to hear them. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on Twitter, which is now known as the X app, at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. I'll be back later today for the Kale Clark Show live here right on uh, Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. And until then, God bless you. And please share these programs with a friend through the Relevant Radio app. Take care.